Well, this morning we're jumping over some important texts from where we left off last week. <clears throat> as I mentioned, some of those will make their way back to us, or we'll make our way back to them as we uh, come back in Lent and consider some of the sacrificial passages, atonement passages. Um, <clears throat> but today we jump over into chapter 16 of Exodus and also chapter 17. I'll read 17 here in a second, uh, just verses 1 through 7. Um, but it'd be worth for us, uh, be worth it for us to remind ourselves where we are and how we got to where we are. Of course, we left off last week with the plagues. God was making war against Pharaoh. He had raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, meaning that he pulled back his hand on that spring-loaded evil of Pharaoh's heart. So hardening his heart was a work he could do simply by pulling back the restraints and letting Pharaoh uh, run to the, the perimeter of, of <clears throat> the evil that God would allow. And, and in so doing, then God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And this battle goes on and on as the Lord draws it out, really making it larger than life that we might see. And he tells us why. He said, so that you might know and that all the world might know that I alone am God. And so the Lord goes after Pharaoh and ultimately crushes Pharaoh. In the final of those plagues, the last of those plagues, which was the killing of the firstborn, in which Pharaoh's own firstborn son perishes, though the firstborn of Israel is spared. And again, we'll come back to that text later, that of the Passover and God's provision there. But as you know, the result of this then was that Pharaoh finally said, okay, enough, and he lets Israel go this time. And off they go. We know having plundered Israel uh, by God's sovereignty, uh, the neighbors giving silver and gold and animals, and off they go. They go out into the wilderness. Just get the heck out of here enough frogs and lice and darkness and death and so off they go and they they camp there near the red sea uh, but you'll remember that once again though pharaoh's heart is hardened and he thinks it's like cold water splashed on him and he's thinking wait a second you know we can we can identify with this kind of if i actually let the, i know we've suffered a lot but if i let go now it's all been in vain it's, it's me saying they win i can't I'm not going to let that happen. I've just let my whole slave force just walk out of the land and leave after suffering such indignities. And so what was I thinking? Let's go round up the horses and the chariots. We're going to get them back, and it's not going to be pretty. And so <clears throat> off they go. Meanwhile, Israel, who's thinking, wow, this is great. Uh, we've, we've left. We're on our way. The sky is blue. The birds are singing. And, uh, and, and we're, we're, wow, the promises of God really are uh, about to come true. We're going to head to this, back to our land, and look, we have such bounty with us. And isn't this great? Uh, they they hear the they, they hear the rumblings coming and the the ground shaking, and they look off, you know, back to the the west, and there is the this big cloud of dust as the chariots and the horses are making their way by Pharaoh to them, and uh, you know that they they turn to Moses and they panic, they freak out, and they they say, you know, what the heck? Um, we thought we just had a straight shot to the promised land, and now look at what's going to happen. You know, I mean, now they're 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 coming out to get us, and they're gonna they're gonna slaughter us out here, and this is this is going to be horrible. And uh, even Moses is is a little unsettled. Uh, asked the Lord, you know, what do we do here? <clears throat> uh, this looks like a jam. And 
Moses says, uh, the Lord says, you just do what I tell you. Uh, you you'll go, you'll strike the, the sea with the staff that I gave you, with which you struck the Nile, and uh, you just watch what I do. And so the people are grumbling and complaining to Moses, and Moses tells them, you just stand still and watch while the Lord fights for you. And in faith, Moses says that, believing God's word, and he has good reason to because he's seen the Lord fight for them in the ten plagues, <clears throat> and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud comes, and the Lord confounds the, uh, the army of Egypt and holds them back, allows the Red Sea to open, and there they go through, and then he removes the barrier so that Pharaoh can chase, and he lures them into the Red Sea, and as Israel escapes out the other side, the Red Sea collapses upon them, and the horse and the chariot wash up on the, on the shore. And in chapter 15, as the chariots are washing up on the banks, uh, the shore of the Red Sea, uh, Moses sees this and, in the presence of Israel, leads them in a song of deliverance known as the song, uh, which is in your Bibles probably, as the Song of Moses in chapter 15. And they sing together in praise um, of what the Lord has done. And here we find ourselves now on the other side. And once again, the sky is blue and the birds are singing. And this is wonderful and amazing. And we can't believe it all happened this way. And wow, God really does keep his word. And look at that. And, and look, you can almost see the promised land from here. It's, it's, right, it's right around the corner. And things are really going swimmingly. Well, that's a bad choice. But they, they're going very well. You know? <laughs> they're, they're going very well. Um, all right, so that brings us then to chapter 16. And let me go ahead and read 17 so that I have, we have it. And because all of this now, uh, the, in fact, in this story, in this little uh, section of Scripture, um, it's really so chock full with images of Christ that it, it, it really deserves several sermons. But we're going to gather them all up into one. And as I say, most of these are right out there on the surface for us to see. Now, now, sometimes in the Christ in the Old Testament, again, we kind of take the broad view and we say, okay, I see the narrative arc of what's happening here, and I see how this narrative, this plot, if I live into it, if I, if I get it into me, it's going to really help me understand what Jesus is doing, or it's going to help me understand the whole flow of redemptive history. We could take the Exodus as a whole and think about that. <clears throat> um, and then sometimes you get images of Christ that just in and of themselves just demand you make the connection and that you see them. And we have several here, um, uh, um, especially, of course, in the bread from heaven and the water from the rock, you know, the living water and the, the bread from heaven, the food and the drink that God miraculously provides and provides to sustain them in the the wilderness, <clears throat> we have these right here before us. And again, as I say, this whole text is just, ju just so chock full, really Exodus 1 all the way up through this uh, with these pictures of Christ. So let me, let me give the, the last one we'll discuss today in the Exodus 17 passage. Um, and this is verses 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the ch children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, 
Why is it that you've brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you will strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel, because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Okay, so <clears throat> that concludes the text. And really, it wouldn't be bad to read the text before ours in, in chapter 15, because the grumbling on this side of the, of the Red Sea starts there. Now, when we consider this story, a couple things stand out to us. And one of the most obvious is the grumbling of Israel. I mean, it really is cartoonish. It really is, as I said in our word of exhortation this morning, it's, it's really larger than life. It's like you can't not hear it. You can't avoid it. In fact, it's annoying. It rubs you the wrong way. You, we scoff at it. We think, how dare they? Uh, you know, how dare they? You know, after the Lord, didn't they just see what the Lord did for them? Yet, grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. They come out of Egypt after watching God deliver in the ten plagues. And then, oh, God, the God who did that is the God who is now going to let us all die by the banks of the, of the Red Sea. But they grumble. And they ask questions. And they say, this was stupid. What a stupid idea. To come, what were we thinking? We're just going to walk out of Egypt and they're going to let us go? How stupid was this? Moses, we believed you. We, we were blinded by your grand dreams of a promised land and, and by you saying the Lord is with us. But we're so stupid and so dumb. And now we're all going to pay. And they, they say dumb things like, was it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? I mean, what an idiotic dumb, insulting thing to say. But this is the kind of things they're doing. Again, it's almost cartoonish. But they see the big dust cloud and they're thinking, I don't see how we get out of this. I, you know, so we're going to die here. And the Lord delivers in a crazy and amazing way. I mean, that's the other thing that stands out here. The, 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 the amazing grumbling and the amazing deliverances of God. And, and so they get out. And they get to the other side, and it's all party. It's all singing. It's all hand clappings and hugs. And isn't God awesome? Can you believe what just happened there? And then no sooner. I mean, it's a couple days. And granted, a couple days without water is a lot. I wouldn't want to go a couple days without water. They go a couple days without water. And they begin to grumble. And they say, this is ridiculous. If you're going to bring us out here, at least provide, you know, at least have some water. You couldn't think about the supplies. I mean, we didn't think about this. We're going to go through all this, and we're going to get out here only to die of thirst. That's what all this was for, so that we could get out here and die of thirst. That is an amazing plan. This is the stupidity that they're saying. And they come to a body of water and say, okay, okay, this is great. But they go to drink from the water. This is before our text. They go to drink of the water, but they can't drink it. It's bitter water. It's stale stagnant they can't drink of it oh great 
great. That's even worse. Better we don't see water than that we have to see water, but then we can't drink the water. And the Lord says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. See that tree over there? There's a tree. See that tree? Go get that tree and throw it in the water. (laughs) And Moses, once again, who by this time is thinking, I don't get any of this, but there's a tree and the Lord told me to throw it in the water. I'm going to do it. Gets a tree, throws it in the water, and the water becomes sweet. And they can drink it. And they all come and they fill themselves with water. And once again, the sky is blue. And the birds are singing. And it's, it's, it's the promised land. We're off to the promised land. Until they run out of food. And oh, great. This is great. We got no food. Fine. There was water. But what are we, we're going to drink, but we can't eat. We're going to drink, but, but we're just going to starve out here? So this is the plan. We deliver us. We get us some water. But now we're supposed to fill our bellies with that. I guess we can't eat. <laughs> you know. And the Lord says, Moses, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to actually give them the gift of food. And not just bread, by the way. I'm going to bring quail in here. I'm going to bring flocks of quail to feed a million people. I'm going to bring so many quail in here. They're going to be able to eat meat you know, at night. They're going to fill their bellies with meat in the evening. And then when they wake up in the morning, there's going to be bread just waiting for them. And you know the story of the manna. They wake up, the dew goes away, and then there's these little cakes of honey-like bread. Not just bread, but sweet-tasting bread. And, and he just has it there for them. It's just, go, go take it. Just gifts of bread, just laying there on the, desert, on the wilderness floor. Just take it and eat it. And he says, I'm going to test you to see if you'll obey, though. You can just take enough for you. Just one omer, and, you know, enough for everyone in your tent. Don't try to gather too much. Don't save it. Give us this day our daily bread. Don't, don't you start saying, yeah, but I wonder if he'll provide tomorrow. I better just, little insurance policy here. I'm going to stick some under for tomorrow. Nope. If you wake up, there's maggots in it, and it stinks. No, the Lord will provide. You're going to need to trust today that he'll provide tomorrow's bread tomorrow. Don't get tomorrow's bread today. There's other wonderful lessons in there for us to think about. You can meditate on those, but the, 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 the statement, the, the idea is still there for Israel. Gather today's bread today and trust that tomorrow, tomorrow's bread will be there. Except on Friday when you gather enough for two days because it's the Sabbath and I don't want you going out. But of course, they don't obey. They gather, enough, they gather too much and it's stinking in the camp. And then on Friday, they're all out there, you know, excuse me, on Saturday, they go out on the Sabbath to try to gather and there's none there and they're frustrated. But Moses is angry with them that they're doing this and they're not heeding the word of the Lord. Uh, in in the presence of of his gifts that are given to him to them, and that brings us then finally to the text we just read in seventeen, where now they are receiving this daily manna. They've seen the Lord do the amazing thing with the water, but once again in chapter seventeen we hit a dry spell. Literally, we have no more water. We're out of water. We're frustrated. And rather than coming and saying, "Hey Moses, do you think it would be the right thing to do to pray?" I mean, this God who's provided so graciously to us, can we go before him? Can we hold a prayer meeting here and go before the Lord and ask him to provide some more? They don't do that. They don't do that. They once again say, Moses, this was a stupid plan after all because look, we have no water today. And this is ridiculous. And once again, we're ruined. And we knew it. We knew it the whole time. (laughs) And Moses finally snaps a little bit and he prays and he says you know 
you know, what do you want me to do to these people? He does not, he's not even for these people at this point. Now it says, what do you want me to do to them? Like, just give me the word and let me deal with them. And the Lord says, well, here's what I want you to do. Grab your staff. And he's thinking, oh, yeah, 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 good. He says, but we're going to go strike a rock and I'm going to provide water for them. Well, this is the story that's before us. It is a story of grumbling. No doubt about it. If we're to take these stories and through them establish patterns of thinking and, and, and weight lenses by which we're to understand what Jesus does, uh, then we're also to establish lenses by which we view ourselves. I mean, if you are in this story, I hate to break it to you, you're in the crowd of grumblers. What other character are you? You're not Moses. You're not God. So if we're to find ourselves in this story, if you're to look, I wonder where I am in here. Well, let me tell you where you are. You're in the crowd. You're, you're one of the faceless grumblers that the Lord has been so gracious to, yet who time and time and time again when we run into today's problem, grumble against the Lord. This is a story, these are stories, which really highlight and make uh, uh, present before us our sinfulness. We are grumblers. It doesn't always feel that obvious, as we said before. Ours always seems kind of justified, because our problems are real life problems. Yeah, I mean they should have known God was going to provide for them. You know, but look, I, I've got this problem. I got that problem. And I don't, you know, and I've been praying for this for a long time, and the Lord just doesn't seem to hear. He doesn't seem to get that I really, really need this this time. That's what our grumbling always feels like. It feels better than. And theirs, theirs seems so obviously sinful. But I think this is before us in this cartoonish way. And don't forget, it's condensed for us, right? If we took, if, if we had somebody write our bio <laughs> and just condense all our grumblings, it would be like, what did these, did these people do anything but grumble? If he was trying to highlight that, we'd really, I mean, I'm sure they did some good things too. But the grumbling is being highlighted for us here. And what's interesting is in chapter 16, I have at least four times there from verses 7 to 12, we're told the Lord has heard. The Lord hears your complaints. You're not complaining against me, Moses said. I want to let you be clear. I know you're mad at me right now, but you're not complaining against me. You're complaining against the Lord. You're grumbling against the Lord. And the Lord has heard your grumbling. Is that a good thing or a bad thing that the Lord has heard your grumbling? Right? When you grumble against your boss... If somebody comes to you and says, hey, by the way, the boss heard you grumbling, you're like, yes. Yes, he's heard me. No, you're like, wait, he heard that? <laughs> Is it a good thing or a bad thing? No, I want to grumble. I just don't want him to hear it. You know, I just want to grumble to you and we, we get it out here. And I just want to whine and whine and gripe and gripe. And I have other words for it, but I won't use here. It's not appropriate. But we'll do that here amongst ourselves. But I don't want the boss to hear that. But Moses reminds us, the Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. And we think, uh-oh. Well, there's some lessons for us to think about in our grumbling. It always feels like we're grumbling against our boss or we're grumbling against our economy or we're grumbling about our president or we're grumbling about our culture or we're grumbling about our taxes or we're grumbling about our health or we're grumbling about our, you know, electricity bill or we're grumbling about whatever we're grumbling about. But Moses does, I think, 
splash cold water on our face. And he says, I get it that you're grumbling against me, but ultimately you know, right, that you're grumbling against the Lord. All our grumbling is ultimately against the Lord. You know, Jonathan Edwards had in his resolutions, they're fun to read if you want, to, if you want some interesting reading that'll convict you and <laughs> make you feel terrible about yourself. Um, Jonathan Edwards has a list of his resolutions, like I resolve to do this, I resolve to do that. And they're, they're, they are the sincere desire of a Christian to live. He, he actually says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work to do these things because I'm going to really try to attack sin in my life. And these are the things I'm going to resolve to do and not to do. And one of them that convicts me most of all is he says, I, I'm going to resolve not to be mad at inanimate things. You know, so when I, when I walk out of here and I stub my toe on that chair, I'm not going to turn around and kick the chair and curse the chair. Now, I'm particularly convicted by this because I'm mad at everything. <laughs> I'm mad at everything that gets in my way because I'm going, going, going. I fill my life with a lot of stuff, and those who know me know I'm not the best at ordering it all. So I can hold that all together until one little spring pops. And then once one spring pops, I really feel that. You know? So when I, when, I, when I stub my toe on the chair, it's like there, there's the spring, and now that unleashes me, and I turn around and I kick the chair. <laughs> and I get mad at the chair. But Edwards resolves not to do that. I'm not going to get mad at the chair. Because to be mad at these things is ultimately to be mad at the God of providence. Is ultimately to grumble against God like he gets what Moses is saying. I, I know you're grumbling against the chair or against this or against that. But ultimately you grumble against the Lord. Hi, I had... Um, I had this uh, conviction also in chapel the other day. I can't remember if I told it. Maybe I mentioned this last week in Sunday school. But anyway, had this, uh, had this conviction a week, whatever, a couple days ago, when the chaplain in our school was doing just our short little morning exercise. You know, we just do five minutes in the morning. We sing the doxology. We read scripture. And on three days a week, just a short little exhortation, like literally three minutes. And he was challenging us to pray for our, our uh, leaders. And... Um, our president and our governor and this, who, who we may very well disagree with, but we're called to pray for them because they're, they're God's appointed man or woman in authority over us. And I was really convicted over that, particularly for me, as I think I shared in Sunday school last week, because of our governor. I was really, I've been very, very frustrated with our governor in New York, so I know you're not all New Yorkers, but, um, but really frustrated with him and having very, very bitter feelings uh, toward him for some of the judgments he had and some of the things he had made, just personally. I'm sharing something personal, no political view, but just some of the things he had done had really made me upset. I was very upset about them and bitter about them. And when Mike, our chaplain, had said that, it really cut me to the core. And I thought, but he's God's man. He may not be the man that I would have voted for. If I could snap my fingers and have any person, it may not be him. But nonetheless, right now, he's God's man. And I don't know what God's doing, but he's God's man there. So if I grumble and whine and gripe and complain, not that I have to agree. I can have my thoughts. I can disagree with policy. I can do all those kinds of things. But I have to be careful that it doesn't cross that line over into grumbling because when I start grumbling about him and whining about it, well, then really what I'm doing is whining about God. And his providence. At least that, I think, is what Moses is telling us here. The, for them, it seems obvious. For us, it doesn't seem obvious. No, that's not what I'm doing. 
It's just, I just don't think he's a good leader, you know, or I don't think that's that. But Moses tells us here, and hence Edwards, I think also, Jonathan Edwards also reinforces that. So God is the God who hears our grumbling, <clears throat> and all our grumbling is ultimately then against the Lord. And Israel grumbled pre-Red Sea and post-Red Sea, and it was all against him. Secondly, we have, so we got Israel's grumbling, that's, that's front and center for us in this text, and we ought to reflect upon our own, and, and again, as I said in our, our word of exhortation today, in confession of sin, what do you do with it? Yes, you should be like Edwards, resolve, work harder at it, but ultimately confess it, repent of it, turn to the Lord and find forgiveness for it. That's the, that's the right thing to do with it. The second thing that's highlighted for us here is Moses' leadership. Moses is trying to be faithful. Now, he stumbles, and we know the end of this story. We know that finally, at the end, Moses really stumbles. He will later, uh, before he's entering the promised land, also get water out of a rock. But this time he'll be so angry over the complaining of the people, he strikes the rock twice. Having not been told to do it, uh, he will strike, strike the rock twice, and the Lord will say, okay, Moses, um, for that you're not allowed to enter the promised land. doesn't mean he's not saved. It just means historically he wasn't allowed to see the fruit of all this labor. And that was a real judgment indeed. Moses is saved, but, that, but he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land for, with Israel. Moses cracked. He lost it. But here we see Moses, we see Moses making the effort and, and going before the Lord on behalf of the people as a good high priest, right? He's, he's being a priest. He takes the needs of the people. He goes to the Lord and bears them to the Lord. The Lord tells him what to do, and now he comes back as a prophet to the people and says, here's what the Lord says. And then as a king, he acts and he tries to accomplish and does what the Lord tells him to do and brings deliverance to the people, whether it's you know striking the rock, leading them through the, the Red Sea. Moses is a very Christ-like figure in that contained in him are all three offices that will after him get divided up, split up among different people. But Moses is maybe the most Christ-like figure in the Old Testament at least to this point, in that he is the prophet, priest, and king of Israel. He, all of them are contained within him. Now, he's a, he's a failure. He's a, he's a wonderful failure, but he's a failure at the end of the day. And we see the little cracks coming uh, in, in the text even here. By the time he finally just, you know, he's getting angry with them, and then finally, you know, what, what do you want me to do to these people? You know, he's really, he's starting to crack, and those cracks will be healed, but then eventually... They'll break open when he gets, you know, to the to the uh, Jordan River. But Moses, it's worth us contemplating and meditating upon his leadership, having led them out by the hand of God, and in so doing, see the work of Christ, who is the one who leads and provides and represents and reports and delivers. Right, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, who does all these things. But the real picture that's before us today, yes, the grumbling. Yes, the leadership of Moses. But the thing that stands out most to us in this text, and which most of it is given to, is the provision of God. We're told, again, four times in just five verses or so, the Lord hears your complaints. The Lord heard your complaints. The Lord hears. The Lord hears. The Lord hears. Just as he heard your, your, your uh, suffering in Egypt. Remember, that's what he told Moses at the burning bush. The Lord, I have heard their sorrows, and I'm going to come deliver them. Well, he also hears their complaints. And what's he going to do about it? What's God going to do? 
if we're just reading along the story and we don't know the story, we might go, uh-oh, right? If, 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 we're, if we're watching a movie and this, these, these people are complaining and grumbling against the boss and then we know the boss is standing right around the corner listening to this, we feel the tension of that. We think, uh-oh, oh boy, how's this going to go down? Ah, he's going to lose his job or, oh, it's going to, you know. What's going to happen? We, we, we may want to feel the suspense of that, like, oh, the Lord hears, the Lord hears. It's repeated and repeated for us. What's he going to do? Well, his response is really counterintuitive. This is a holy God we're talking about. And we know that God, the God of the Bible, especially the God of the Old Testament, gets a bad rap. Well, the God of the Old Testament was really harsh. But the God of the New Testament is God of love. This is the kind of stuff that your average non-believer who hasn't really delved into the scriptures thinks, if they know anything, if they know that much, they think, well, the, the Old Testament... God was very harsh. And in the New Testament, he's loving and gracious and so forth. I like the God of Jesus. You know, I like that picture more than the Old Testament God. Well, have you read these stories? Yes, he's a holy God who brings down judgment and who has Egypt washed up in the sea. There's no doubt about it. He's a holy God. He's a holy God who strikes us a dead because he touches the ark strikes down the sons of Aaron because they bring strange fire into his presence and worship. No doubt about it. Don't ever forget it. Our God is a consuming fire. He's holy, holy, holy. But the God of the Old Testament is amazingly patient, slow to anger, abiding in loving kindness. His answers and responses to Israel's rebellion and constant grumbling is patience and provision. If the story, if God did all that and then the people dare say to God, is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Can you imagine the insult? Is it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? If fire came out of heaven and just smoked them all, if that were in the Bible, we'd be like, okay, yep, get that. Next story, Next story that, that makes sense. If after all of his deliverance, he brings them out and they say that, and God said, you know what, you're done. We get it. That story would make sense in the Bible. But God does not destroy them. He does not destroy them. And what's even more, not only does he not just smoke them right there, like we would probably do if we were God, but on top of that, he provides for them. He provides for them. He not, not only does he not smoke them, but he doesn't say, oh, you know what? You know what? I was going to give you. This is, what, this is what we do. Again, we could just see ourselves. So, you know what? I was going to give you water. <laughs> I was going to give you water. But now, you know what? It's going to be a few more days. <laughs> that's the kind of things I do. So that's what I do with my students, with my children. <laughs> You know, I was going to give you that, but now, now I'm not. Now, he could have destroyed them. He doesn't do that. He could have said, you know what? Now I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do it for you, though I might have otherwise. He didn't do that. He actually positively provides for them. He actually tells Moses, tell them, stand still and watch. I'm going to deliver them. He delivers them, crushes the enemy in the Red Sea. Then they, there's no water. Throw this tree into the, into the... He turns the bitter water sweet. Actually gives them what they're grumbling about. Okay, watch this. I'm going to bring quail in here. 
after they're whining and complaining, okay, I'm going to give bread from heaven. Oh, they're disobedient. They need water. You know what? I'm going to give them water out of a rock. Not only does he not destroy them, not only does he not not give them what they deserve, he actually provides for them again and again and again. And he does so in these dramatic, powerful, public ways in which you can't say, was it God or was it just the weather? You know, it's like, was it, if, if he sends a big rainstorm in there, you might say, was that God or was it just the low pressure system? He does it in the most dramatic way. It's bitter, you throw a tree in there, <laughs> and the water becomes sweet. Hard to wonder what happened there. It's just, I don't know what happened, except God said do it, and the water became sweet. I mean, okay, maybe a whole big flock of quail could come by. But I mean, I've never seen this before. They call it manna, meaning what is it? That's all they can call it. Because the dew rises and there's cakes of honey bread for them to eat. After the Lord said he's going to do it. I mean, this is, it's hard to do anything other than give God glory for what he's done. And when a, water, when a rock cracks open and water starts gushing out of it in order for you to drink, it's hard to give anyone glory but God. When the Egyptians get washed up in the Red Sea that just opened up for you to walk through and now collapses on them, hard to give glory anywhere other than to God. God provides, and he provides in such a way like he did with the flood, so that you might know. And it is me. Now again, our grumbling always seems justified, and God's provision to us always seems, right? Our, our, our grumbling doesn't seem as obvious, and God's provision doesn't seem. That's why you need stories like this. Because they remind you that when you grumble against the chair, you're grumbling against God. And when you enjoy that meal that you'll enjoy this afternoon, that's just as much God providing it as providing manna in the wilderness. I just told my students this week, we went through the doctor's providence together. And so when we see miracles, and we long for miracles, we're like, oh, miracles, you can see the powerful hand of God at work. But when you go eat that turkey sandwich, what is the difference between God providing it through the the farmer and the truck driver and the, the deli, you know, uh, uh, meat slicer. Uh, what's the difference between God providing it through those means or God just laying it on the ground for you to eat? It's still God. But you need these kind of larger-than-life stories to remind you, hey, my grumbling against him and is, is ultimately against him and everything I have is ultimately from him. Even though I've come in time to do grumble this week. Yeah, you still have to touch the food. The heart still beats. There's still oxygen to breathe. There's still beautiful snow on the ground. There's food on our hands. The Lord provides. And it's Him that we grumble against. And it's Him that provides. Yeah. <clears throat> what is this real problem? Well, that? The problem is that we seek our contentment in the stuff and not in him. At least that's my problem. So when the stuff goes away, the grumbling comes back. Right? The stuff I have the stuff, the grumbling subsides. The stuff goes away, the grumbling comes back. Because we must find ourselves, just like we said last week, I was seeing that little image from from, uh, from Scarlet Letter with Chillingworth and Dimsdale because Chillingworth had made Dimsdale the center of his life and so all his whole life he came about was hatred towards Dimsdale for what he did to his wife that when Dimsdale finally died Chillingworth just kind of withered away because 
his whole life was centered around himself, around something finite, around something that couldn't sustain him. And so when it went away, he withered away. But the same is true on the positive side. When we build our life around stuff, when we build our life around the gifts of God, when they become the center thing that's supposed to hold us together, well, when the outward manifestation of those gifts goes away or weakens, well, then we need it. Because it's all we've got. And the one way it starts to go away, our identity goes away, or our happiness goes away, or our contentment goes away. And so we begin to grumble. And therefore, it's not until we learn to build our lives around that thing which will never, ever, ever diminish. The thing which alone can sustain us. The center which cannot fall away when we anchor ourselves and orbit ourselves around that. That we can begin to be able to do Because it will never, ever, ever, ever let you go. It will never weaken. It will never fail. Israel had the God of bread and water in their midst. He was traveling with them. He had manifested himself over and over and over again to make people shock. But their problem was they were seeking satisfaction in gifts. And this, again, if we're honest, is no different really than everything we do. It's like the prodigal son, we want that money to deliver that We don't ever want to say that, and because we're Christians, ultimately it's not true, but what we should for us, because we know who by God's faith will come back. But we should recognize that the prodigal son is in a fall. We're all tempted to the father's well. And that father, the father's well, cut off from the father, will eventually grow up. Some the flower from the roots is pretty for roots. But eventually it grows up and dies. The money of the father runs out. And the whole country is the money of the And eventually you realize, the money. The father is the money. I thought it was a help. I thought it was a good job. I thought it was a career with me. I thought it was this, that, that. I don't know. Whatever things are that kind of fall into the sense of life. I thought it was that. And, and even when that they didn't try to replace it with something else, with something else, with something else. But we realized it was a good And the son, in fact, is taking a trip. Forget all the stuff. Forget all the good. Forget the wealth. Forget the the house to get, just treat me like a servant, just give me gifts. Just let me back in love. Give him himself and everything else. Right? You, get, you, you get everything else, but it's not the everything else that's going to sustain you. It's him that's going to sustain you. So the reaction of the of God in this text should shock us and it should make us fall on our faith in the country and then stand up in thanksgiving because he does forgive you and he does destroy you. But there's a bigger shocker in this text. It's not just that he doesn't destroy them. It's not just that he doesn't not give them what they deserve. Um, it's not just that he actually gives them the stuff. But that passage in chapter 17 really takes it to a level that is beyond anything. If, if everything else is coming to this, this passage in chapter 17 is really um, mind-blowing. Because 
he doesn't just provide water, you'll notice, hopefully you, you caught it, but he doesn't just provide water in this life. It's not like, okay, they're lacking water, so it's in there. Okay, they're lacking bread, here's bread from heaven. Oh, we're lacking water again, okay, let's do it a different way. Hit a rock, and water comes out. No, 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 something much, much like that. And it's like the culminating People are like, look, maybe we should get rid of Moses. Maybe it's time to go back to Egypt. We had it so much better back then. Everything's kind of reaching its climax. And then God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do, yes, Moses, what should I do to them? And he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Get your staff with which you struck the Nile. He didn't say, get the staff that I used to deliver the people. He says, get the staff by which we brought judgment down upon the Nile. Remember, we turned it to blood. Get your staff with which you brought before me judgment and let's go. Follow me and bring the elders because I want them to see this too. This is like the old man saying, get me my belt. I remember this one. Get me my belt. And let's go. Going out behind the woodshed. And again, if we're just tracking with the story and we don't know where this is going, like, Finally, it's all reached its climax and it's reaching up. But you talk about counterintuitive, forget counterintuitive. It's, it's shocking what happens next because he says, let's go out here. We're going to go out to the wilderness to this rock. And here's what we're going to do, Moses. I'm going to stand on the rock. And then I want you to take the staff that we use to bring judgment. That Moses is probably thinking, great, I'm going to start striking all the people of Israel with. And they certainly deserve it. Again, had God smoked them, we'd all been like, yeah, okay, we get it. But he says, Moses, I'm going to stand on this rock. And then I want you to strike the rock while I'm on it. Oh, there's going to be judgment. We're going out behind the, the shed. And we're going to use the belt. But you're going to use it on me. Strike me. Strike me with the blow that they deserve. And I'll provide for them that way. <laughs> this is beyond any, I mean, the other stuff was amazing. This takes it to a level that we just can't even imagine. Wait, what just happened there? And for a reader who's just scanning through the Old Testament, you'd read right over, they'd be like, oh, you're standing on the rock, I don't know what that's about. And you strike the rock and water gushes out of a rock. You're thinking about how's water come out of a rock? and missing what just happened. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, hey guys, their story is our story. They were all baptized just like you're baptized. They were baptized in the Red Sea, we get it. They're baptized into Moses, we're baptized into Christ. They ate the bread from heaven, you eat the bread from heaven. They drank, he says, from that spiritual rock which followed them. And then he throws this in there. And that rock was Christ. Christ, of course, is everything in this text, right? He's Moses, and he's the water, right? He comes to the, he comes to the woman, that, that adulterous woman in, at the well, right? The Samaritan woman. And he says, ma'am, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water, and I would give you living water, which if you drank, you'd never be thirsty again. I'm the living water. And we know that he's the bread from heaven, 
He said that whole long passage in John chapter 6, right? You guys are looking for manna, right? You're looking for the goodies. I'm telling you, I'm the bread. It's me you need. It's not your bellies filled. I'm the true bread from heaven. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will never go hungry. Jesus is Moses, and Jesus is the water, and Jesus is the bread. But shockingly, we know he's also the rock from which the water comes, which is struck. How do we get all these blessings? How do we get the sustenance in all of our grumbling and all our complaining? Shockingly, not only does he not damn you, he's damned for you. He stands on the rock and tells Moses, strike me. This is why when he strikes it later, having not been told to do it, why he's not allowed to enter the promised land. Because it means something. You, you, be careful now. God puts himself there to be struck by his own creatures so that he can provide for them just as Christ is nailed to the cross, his side pierced, and from his side comes gushing blood and water. But we dare not. We do that by his authority and by his permission. The question that the text ends with in verse 7 the last verse of all that we've read today. So we called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Where is God? Is he here or is he not? Does he care? Remember Tim Keller saying once that when he spoke to the victims, the families of 9-11, And he said, when you ask me why God would allow this, he said, I can't tell you what the answer is, but I know what the answer is not. I I can't tell you why God in his providence let you go three days without water. I I can't tell you why he let you come out here without enough bread for the trip. I, I can't tell you what the answer is, but I can tell you what it's not. I can tell you what the answer cannot be. It can't be that he doesn't care. Because look over there. Look at what's happening. Look at Golgotha. Look at the cross and see what your God does. I know when you grumble today and when I grumble today because God just doesn't seem to be here with us and God doesn't seem to be answering, we do the same stupid things that they do. Is God here or not? But you're looking at the wrong place. Look over there. Look at what's going on in that rock as he's being struck by his own creatures so that you can have water to live. I know you don't understand why he's not here right now doing what I would like him to do. But before you start asking, is God real? Is he serious about this? Does he love me or not? Look over there. Because there he is being nailed to the cross by his own creatures so that from his side might flow streams of living water so that his flesh might become the bread of life. That if you will eat of that, forget the flesh. The flesh fails, Jesus says in John 6. But the spirit gives life. Look at him. Eat of him. Drink of him. And live. Let us as grumblers be aware of our grumbling today. But not be destroyed by it. Let us recognize our grumbling and repent of it, but let us run to the streams of living water. Let us run to the rock 
that was struck on our behalf, that through him we might live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a story like this which exceeds anything we can imagine. It goes to places we would not ever dared to have written were it not inspired by your spirit. For Father, this story tells us that you are such a God so far from being just harsh that you are a God who would stand in the place of his wretched, sinful people and bear the judgment that they deserve so that they might be fed, so that they might be sustained. Lord, we thank you for the life that you give to us by the death of your son. Forgive us our grumbling. We confess it today that we are by nature a grumbling people. Forgive us, restore us, empower us to run the race with endurance and with our eyes fixed on Christ and with our hope fastened to him. But Lord, we know we are weak and our hearts are prone to wander. So we thank you for your spirit for we know that it is the, the tethering work of the spirit that holds us to Christ and not we ourselves. We thank you that it does not depend upon our grip. As Jesus said in that passage today, no man comes to the Father except uh, to him except you draw him. So we thank you that you've drawn us. Sustain us, we pray, in trust and faith by your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.